The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking, Ga- Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of No Self. Over a period of years, during my childhood and on through adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back and back, smaller and smaller. Myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself, looking at myself in the mirror, kind of endlessly. And I was often amazed by this dream and certainly fascinated by it, mostly intrigued by it. And if I thought about it very much, I would get pretty perplexed about it. But mostly I was really very interested in it. Interested enough that it's the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing from my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life beginning when at the age of 16 I discovered the Buddhist teachings through a paper that I had to write for high school, I was required to write for high school, about religions other than Judeo-Christian. And right then I had the distinct feeling of touching a deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three characteristics or the three truths of all phenomena. The first being Anicca, the constantly changing, impermanent nature of all things, all situations, every relationship, every experience, every phenomena that arises through our body-mind continuum. And with the second truth, the universal characteristic of all things, all phenomena being dukkha, meaning the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world. Nothing being secure, nothing being sustaining in the outer world of experiences, relationships, places, situations, or material objects. And in the world of all of our inner experiences of body and mind. None of it offering a sustaining sense of pleasure or happiness, but rather the dukkha of the round and round and round of pleasant and unpleasant, seemingly good, seemingly bad, liking, disliking, the dukkha of the round of 
conditional existence, simply because of the natural and ongoing mortality of all things, all phenomena being of the nature to change and to pass away, thus making it undependable in terms of giving us any ongoing, any sustaining satisfaction. So this evening we'll begin to explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality that for many people seems to be the most difficult one to touch, most difficult one to know and to live. And for some, though, it may be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of no self may often be fraught with subtle or maybe overt fear. In its essence, this third characteristic, this third truth, is so basic, so simple, and that with even just a taste of it, life is so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that So many of us are so fearful of stepping through the veil or lifting the thin veil of concept, of an idea, of belief that separates us from the reality of no self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept, of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, that, it. Within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context of the possible future or the already evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung-to and cherished hopes, fears, beliefs, and to relinquish the attachment to all of our clung-to and cherished self-identities. It's important to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw ourselves away. We're not asked to throw ourselves out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as ourself, everything we believe to be ourself, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for one moment. 
one aspect of what we call self and a primary uh, aspect of self for most of us is form, the body in Pali Rupa. This body, Rupa, is a subtle and yet really clearly discernible phenomena that we can see and know through our practice. In truth, this body is a process made up of many, many elements. The earth element, with its characteristics of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness, the water element with its characteristics of flowing and cohesion, the fire element with its characteristics of heat and coolness, and the air or the wind element with its characteristics of supporting and pushing. With each and all of these elements being in constant flux, in and of themselves, and in relationship with each other. Our so-called self is in constant flux. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. So in truth, there's really nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to. Essentially, all of the Buddha's teachings and practices lead to this. The Buddha refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extension of clinging to unreality. Extinction, excuse me, not extension. (laughs) The extinction uh, of clinging uh, to unreality. He didn't want to talk about anything except that. He refused to talk about things that didn't lead to the extinction of dukkha. He wouldn't discuss questions that didn't deal directly in some way with understanding confusion, understanding anguish. He wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of life, a way of life, a teacher of the practices that directly lead to the experiential understanding of the truth, of the way of things. He was a teacher of peace, a teacher of a very practical path to inner peace. The essential aim of the teachings and the practices is to look in the mirror at ourselves and look with such sincerity, humility, and willingness that we begin to see ourself more accurately. We begin to see through ourself, in fact, by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all the layers of 
meaning that we invest in things when we're attached to them. Without all the layers of meaning that we invest in things when we're identified with them. It's actually quite simple. Maybe not so easy, but really quite simple. So we're sitting. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness is just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Memory is just memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, these occurrences, are merely, are just themselves. There are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, there's no real, no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, we could say that there's no real suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. We experience this and that, everything anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only just so much? Can we look into the mirror of ourself without claiming ownership and without investing in interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see? So, for instance, we think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house. This is some of how we create self again and again and again. This is how we become how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that they're not self is seeing self. The looking at glass of the Dhamma looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. 
myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and with humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there is a self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will become undone. When this erroneous sense of things, of a self, is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena, without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what's being observed, what's being seen, what's being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling, merely heat, merely an ache in the chest, or a tingling through the body, merely a thought arising and passing. No duality, as it's sometimes spoken of. Not two. Just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training ourselves again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sense door experiences, feelings, mind states, perceptions, as mere impersonal processes, can the power of a deeply rooted egocentric thought pattern, habits, and self-centered inclinations be loosened up, broken up, reduced, relinquished, and at some point finally eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experience experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self, not self, no self. And then finally, or just for a moment, it's not all about me. And the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine that's based in the fear of losing something, 
is no longer there. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind, is free. And from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. There's a a version of Narcissus written by Stephen Mitchell that um, offers us quite a potent metaphor for this teaching. And these are Stephen Mitchell's words. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. It's a heavy load. It's a burden to carry our self around. This body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around the things of life in the form of thoughts, feelings, various opinions, perceptions, beliefs. Believing that they're mine, me, myself. There's a kind of sting that we sometimes feel in hauling around all of the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership, with a sense of identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, 
Don't get caught up with it. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. And life still happens. We make use of things in this world as it's appropriate. We keep looking and seeing, living life, and in fact, living life much more freshly and much more fully right in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher, right here in retreat and in our life outside of retreat. As we lift a cup and we fill it with water, as we sit and receive experience and notice, as we receive and simply know the gap between the out-breath and the in-breath, for instance. And a poem that uh, speaks of this in a unique way by Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield. She calls it, Only when I'm quiet and do not speak. Only when I'm quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking, the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not a false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that. For I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off as I glimpse for even an instant, the actual instant. As if they believed it possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice when we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. Do I reside in the intestines or in the rumbling sensations therein? Am I in the thigh bone or the skin or the head hair 
or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath, is that me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space? Or in the sensation of the heart and the spreading of the sensation through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend? We might think, okay, I'm not the foot. I'm not the sensation of the in-breath. But certainly my mind, certainly my consciousness is me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. As these uh, next words are spoken, let go of listening with the intellect. Letting go of interpreting with the intellect. And just simply open and receive the words, just simply directly hearing. Where and what is the mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does it have a shape, a color, a texture? Is the mind in the body? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body? Or from someone else? Do you find anything we could call mind? Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What's the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or from the nature of anything? The very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed, formless, unformed, thus unborn. It's without color, without shape. Look into your own mind. It's like experiencing zero which might not be a very appealing-sounding experience to some people. In the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero, you see nothing. Look through it, and you see the world.
Again, the Buddha, out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomenon. It too arises and passes away moment by moment by moment. It too is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors, dependent on the feeling of pleasant and unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It too is dependent on the mental labels, the constructs, and the clinging that arises in in the conscious mind through contact. I'd like to share the Buddha's teaching, a short sutta, uh, on the characteristic of non-self at this point. And the background of this sutta is that um, he was living, this was, a, was given at a time when he was living in uh, Benares or Varanasi at the Deer Park. And he was addressing uh, what's called the group of five, the monks of the group of five were the monks that he had practiced with uh, for about six years, uh, practiced uh, particularly austere practices. And this is the Buddhist uh, sutta. Monk's material form is non-self. For if monk's material form were self, this material form would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine of material form, let my form be, be thus, let my form not be thus. But because material form is non-self, material form leads to affliction. And it's not possible to determine of material form, let my form be thus let my form not be thus. And then he goes on through each of the um, feeling, non-self, perception, non-self, volitional formations, thoughts, non-self, and consciousness is non-self. And he does that same process with each of these. And he says, consciousness is not self. For if monk's consciousness were self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is non-self, consciousness leads to affliction. And it's not possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. And then he goes on and says, what do you think, monks? Is material form permanent or impermanent? And they respond, impermanent, venerable sir, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness, says the Buddha. And they respond, suffering, venerable sir. And the Buddha says, is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine. This I am. This is myself. And the monks respond, no, venerable sir. And the Buddha goes on with each, is feeling permanent or impermanent, is perception permanent or impermanent, volitional formations, is consciousness permanent or impermanent? And the response, impermanent, sir, venerable sir, is what is impermanent, suffering or happiness, 
Suffering, venerable sir, is what is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus. This is mine. This I am. This is myself. And the monks respond, no, venerable sir. And the Buddha goes on to say, therefore, monks, any kind of material form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, any kind of consciousness whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and all consciousness should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom, thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And the sutra goes on a little bit more, but we'll we'll end for now at that point with that sutta. These are a series of questions, as you heard, um, that I think we can really uh, take to heart uh, as a practice teaching. And these questions the Buddha repeated many, many, many times uh, throughout his 45 years of teaching. The conscious mind arises and passes moment by moment, just like every other conditional phenomenon. Consciousness exists only in relationship to some object that it's in contact with through one of the six sense doors. No matter how gross or subtle that object may be. And to make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six aspects or six doors, as it's often called, the six doors of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. It's from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional. And that because of this, it can be one of the arising conditions that leads to suffering. And there are two uh, short conversations that the Buddha has with his uh, disciple Ananda that I'd like to share with you. These are from the Samyutta Nikaya. And Venerable Ananda asks the Buddha a question. He says, Venerable Sir, it said the world, the world. In what way is it said the world? And the Buddha responds to Ananda and says, Whatever is subject to disintegration, Ananda, is called the world in the Noble One's discipline. And what is subject to disintegration? The Buddha asks and answers his own questions often. And what is subject to disintegration? The I, Ananda, is subject to disintegration. Forms, eye consciousness, eye contact, whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, that too is subject to disintegration. And then he goes on, the ear, the mind, Whatever feeling arises with mind contact as the condition, that too is subject 
to disintegration, Ananda, and is called the world. And then Ananda asks another question. He says, Venerable Sir, it is said, empty is the world. Empty is the world. In what way is it said, empty is the world? And the Buddha responds to Ananda and says, it is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. I consciousness, I contact, mind consciousness, whatever feelings arise with mind consciousness as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. That too is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, empty is the world. As awakening beings, can we begin to directly experience and know the changing, interdependent, and empty nature of all things? And again, the mirror of the Dhamma, and this uh, from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage, And he said, nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there's really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, no absolute life. And a wonderfully simple poem by a Buddhist poet named Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. 
And if an image doesn't come easily for you, simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So beginning with closing your eyes. And visualizing or in some way sensing an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your mind, fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, Each jewel contains all the other jewels. So to look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. And now let the image, let the felt sense just simply dissolve. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self, no-self. This is the ground of understanding the aspect of wisdom of no-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, we find that more and more often we act only from the heart of compassion because of a growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there is only relationship, that there's only 
interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it. There's no separate, no isolated, independent you. No separate, isolated, independent me. And from 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second guided meditation. In the mind's eye, or the eye of wisdom, which is centered in the heart, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. and relaxing, staying open and present with this. And now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. And the clouds are moving and changing shape, dissolving, new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the openness of the sky the vast openness rest in the eye of wisdom. Not fixating on any cloud, just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the vast, clear, empty, endless sky-like space to rest in the heart, to rest in the eye of wisdom.
And now let the image fade away. And just sit for a moment, letting the heart, the mind, open wide, allowing awareness to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. And now for a moment, quickly turn the awareness around to look at itself, not looking for anything, just aware of awareness itself. Who's aware? Who knows? Who is aware? And now bringing the attention back into the body. Back to the breath. Back to hearing. And just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and face into the looking glass with willingness and with humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in, and we keep looking whether we're standing, sitting, moving, or lying down. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. And we see that everything, all things, are arising, changing, and passing away. And we see that because of this, there's no thing that satisfies, no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in an ongoing or sustaining way. And we understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to render us really, truly happy and at ease. And we continue to just simply and humbly look into the mirror at ourself, going back and back into this looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becomes clearer and more open, more precise, and at the same time more spacious, back and back to the source of itself, back to the source of all things. And instead of finding some solid, static, separate something, 
or some solid rendition of I, some solid rendition of me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness. Spaciousness of being. And in this there's no solid separate I or no solid separate other. In this essential emptiness there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease, even in the midst of all of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems, the greatest problems, really, the greatest suffering that we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, separate entity. This is really the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. I wanted to tell you a brief story about a friend of mine um, in relationship to this uh, who was suffering this core loneliness. And uh, he decided to seek the help of a therapist uh, for the first time in his life at the age of about 40. And with the advice uh, uh, given to him from some friends, he picked a therapist uh, who had uh, a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And when he called to make an appointment, uh, he was told by the secretary, the, the therapist secretary, that it would be helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern uh, for his first therapy session. And so he arrived uh, at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different sizes and shapes and colors. This is true. (laughs) And he brought them in and he set them down in the waiting room. And then he went out to the car and he got another load of baggage of all different sizes and shapes and colors and brought it into the waiting room, piled it on top of the first load. And then he was, he told the therapist, he told me actually when he told me this story, and he said he also told the therapist that he had to go around uh, collecting baggage from friends and from family because he said he didn't have enough of his own. So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he, of course, took all of his baggage with him that he'd brought, and he piled it up between him and the therapist. And at some point during this first session, this first therapy session, the therapist, in her wisdom, asked my friend to open up all of the baggage that he'd brought in with him. And he did this. And there was nothing inside any of it. (laughs) A very wise therapist. It's not every client that you can do this with, but this particular man was obviously ready for such what I call a pointing out. 
when we begin to taste the truth of no self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of relief like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around maybe for a long time and quite unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature and then just simply set it down. There's an old uh, teaching story that I really like uh, about this and it's the story about an old woman who had practiced for many, many years and it had some wonderful and uh, powerful, expansive, and even some illuminating uh, experiences. But she still felt that she hadn't reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and uh, feeling that there uh, wasn't much time left. And uh, she so, so wanted uh, freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one, who uh, she'd heard was able to turn the mind, to turn the heart to the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her very arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down. And just as he passed, the woman stopped and she called out to him. And he stopped and he turned around towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up at the top of the mountain. And she explained that she was on her way up there to see this being because she wanted to know the deepest truth. She wanted to know ultimate wisdom so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. And she explained to this man that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and anguish and striving. And she told the man that she'd heard that the wise one up at the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her. Well, the old man stood still, looking at her. And then taking his time, he slowly turned around and continued walking down the mountain for just a few steps. And he then stopped again and briefly stood still, and again slowly turned around towards the woman. And then he very slowly and very carefully took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain towards the village. I think she met her man, (laughs) but not at the top of the mountain. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly and so truly that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. And life still happens. We make use of things in the world as it's appropriate. 
and we keep exploring, seeing and understanding, living life, living life more freshly, more fully, right here, right now. And ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And so there are two wings of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom. The liberating equipoise of an unfettered, pure awareness in relationship to all the phenomena that arises and passes through the six sense doors. This liberating wisdom that comes about through our experiential insight into the not-self nature, the empty essence of all things. And the other wing, the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, all things, this being the relative aspect of understanding no self. This wing of freedom, the wing of compassion, is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness. And it informs the way we be. It informs how we act in this world. To truly fly free, we need both wings. And I'd like to close the talk this evening with uh, two short teachings from the Buddha, from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Seclusion is happiness for one content who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. And the second short teaching from the Buddha. And he offers this teaching to one of his disciples whose name is Bahia. And he's speaking directly to Bahia in this. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus you should see that, indeed, there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia there is for you in the scene, only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. And you see that there is no thing here. You will therefore see that indeed 
there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit for just a moment. 